Welcome to this latest edition of the Real Deal Podcast uh, with Surreal Gerald Quinn on this Monday, July 15th, 2019, as I discuss the world of sports and pop culture. As always, I'm streaming live here from um, live on my YouTube channel. As soon as the podcast is done, anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes, maybe even 20 or 30 minutes, it will appear on my YouTube channel, Real Deal Podcast. Also, uh, we'll put up the podcast on Live Talk Radio as well, probably later on this later on tonight. Uh, I'll try to get it up before around you know 10 30, 11 o'clock, so you'll be able to see it on Live Talk Radio as well. I uh, hope everybody enjoyed their weekend. Um, uh, starting off the program again with a on a you know on a down note, as we um, found out earlier earlier today that. Boxing lost a legendary, all-time great in Purnell, Sweet Pete Whitaker, um, dying um, tragically, getting hit by a car down in Virginia at the age of 55. Uh, Whitaker, it sounds like, from all the reports, that this was just wrong place at wrong time. Doesn't seem like any criminal charges are going to be um, pressed to the uh, are going to be put you know placed on the on the driver. And just it just sounds like it seems like it was again a wrong place at, at the wrong time, sort of you know type of thing, and just a, a pure accident. Um, Whitaker was again an all-time great um, during you know when he was at his apex, at his peak, he was pound for pound the best fighter in the world. He you know was champion and you know four-time champion was Laniel champion, uh, Laniel champion in two different weight classes. He only lost, you know, he was 44 and one over the course of his career. His losses coming to um, the likes of Felix Trinidad and, you know, uh, also um, Oscar De La Hoya um, beat him later on in his career. Trinidad beat him, you know, he was when he fought Trinidad, he was done um, physically. I mean, he was he was an old man at that point. But uh, of course, the most his most famous fight was a draw. That was of course back in 1993, September of 1993, when he fought. And, and to everybody with two eyes, beat Julio Cesar Chavez, the legendary Julio Cesar Chavez. But it was, of course, it was called a draw. Sports Illustrated had to cover, you know, robbed, in which he was completely robbed because you can go back and watch that fight. You know, check it out on YouTube sometime. It was a, you know, it was a complete beatdown uh, by uh, Whitaker. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, boxing is boxing. Sometimes, you know, you know, that's, you know, that wasn't the first or last time that a decision didn't go the right way in terms of the sport of boxing. But again, one of the all-time greats without question, a guy who, the only two guys who I would put up there in terms of defensive fighters uh, that could, that were either equal or maybe even superior to him, and that would be, of course, Floyd Mayweather and uh, Bernard Hopkins. Those are the only two guys that I saw that were better defensive fighters. You a lot of his fights, you know, he wasn't he wasn't a knockout artist, wasn't a power puncher, but he was a guy that just that you just could not hit, and a guy that would just technically and from a tactical stand standpoint just take you apart. I mean, he would absolutely take you apart um, with his defense, uh, with his quickness, uh, with his you know with his pinpoint accuracy on his punches. He did not waste. There was no wasted motion with Pernell Whitaker when he threw a punch. He landed. Um, he was very economic and in turn and efficient with uh, with with his punches, and again, you know, a guy again one of the all-time greats without question, and certainly will be missed by the uh, world of boxing. Again, Pernell Whitaker 
gone dead at the age of 55. Um, when you get a chance to just you know check out some of his fights on YouTube. I mean, he, he was uh, now compared to Floyd Mayweather. Mayweather is better. He's better. Mayweather is a better fighter. But I did find um, Pernell Wicker's fights to be more entertainment, entertaining than Floyd Mayweather. To be honest with you, but but, May, but Mayweather is a better fighter. But um, he he was a tremendous fighter. I mean, again, early nineties, that ninety three to ninety seven, he was for about four to five years without question the best fighter in the world. It was it was not it wasn't even a question who was pound for pound the best fighter in the world for about four to five year period. In the uh, early uh, in the early nineties, so again, Floyd Mayweather gone at the age of uh, fifty five. Just getting started here on this latest edition of the Real Deal podcast. Of course, the NBA finally starting to calm down a little bit after uh, just a barrage of trades and and with the free agent signings and what have you. Of course, the last major bomb to drop. In the NBA was, of course, on Friday, last um, last Thursday night, not for last Friday, but last Thursday night when Russell Westbrook was traded, traded to Houston for uh, Chris Paul. Um, Houston, of course, uh, gets uh, Oklahoma City, of course, gets a boat, you know, gets you know, has already a boatload of picks, but got a, you know, they get Chris Paul, also a 24 uh, picks in 24, 25, and 26, and also 21, 25 in terms of having pick swaps now. Oklahoma City is up to 15 first-round picks and three pick swaps, depending on if all those picks convey. Now, chances are, the odds are all those picks are not going to convey, depending on where they fall in, in, in the lottery. But the bottom line is Oklahoma City now probably, without question, has more assets, more assets in terms of draft assets, in terms of draft capital than any team in the NBA, even, even exceeding the uh, New Orleans Pelicans, but you know Pelicans, of course, have the have some young talent, have uh, maybe some you know have better quality players as far as young talent. But as far as draft capital and, and, and assets, Oklahoma City has a you know has the market cornered on that. And again, I you know I'm not not shocked about the trade. Um, I think it was a deal that to me. I would not have made from. I understand what Oklahoma City was trying to do, trying to get off Westbrook's contract. Um, they're going to move Chris Paul. Uh, that's just a matter of time. I can't see Chris Paul ever putting on an Oklahoma City uniform, Oklahoma City Thunder uniform. I'd be shocked if that, if, you know, if, you know, if come October he's on the front, he's on the roster. But from a Houston standpoint, I think it was a clear, it was a clear panic move. It was a clear move that was driven that was driven by James Harden. Um, I think Houston would, would have been much better staying you know, standing pat and bringing back their team that had taken Golden State and back that played Golden State tougher than anyone. And I'm talking about a healthy Kevin Durant led Golden State team tougher than any team in the NBA over the past two years. You can make the case that over the past two years that Houston has been the second best team in the NBA. That Houston should have probably won a championship in 2018. I know they had a disappointing loss in the, in the conference semifinals to Golden State this year in six games. Um, a lot of people thought they should have won the series, just, you know, with Kevin Durant being out. I'm not one of those people, one of those people, to be honest with you, because I still thought that Golden State had had more than enough to um, have more than enough to handle Houston, and he did handle them. 
So I wasn't on that train of, you know, hey, Houston definitely should win this now. Now, if you want to look at it as a blown opportunity, okay, you can look at it, you can look at it from that standpoint. But to me, they blew their opportunity the year before. Um, and I've, you know, I've been consistent with this time in and time out about James Harden. If James Harden was everything that, you know, people make him out to be, you know, in terms of his the numbers that he puts up, in terms of what he does in the regular season, then he finds a way to get his team to the NBA Finals last year, being up three games to two and having a game seven at home, even without Chris Paul. And we saw James Harden again come up small in the playoffs once again. But with that being said, once Golden State was broken up, once it was going to be, once Kevin Durant was out the door, once they traded Andre Iguodala, once, you know, Clay Thompson not being back for basically half the year next year, the West is, you know, the West is absolutely wide open. And I thought that Houston, as, cur- as currently constructed before this trade, was right in position to get to possibly get to the NBA Finals. Now, would I pick them to get to the NBA Finals? Probably not. More than no, I, more, no I, I can honestly say no, I wouldn't have picked them. But they, they would have been right there without question. So to me, this is a classic panic move. Uh, if it doesn't work out, and if it doesn't work out, uh, more Dow Morey probably is going to get fired. So he probably he probably saying, you know, what the hell do I care about 2024, 2026 draft pick? If it doesn't work out, more uh, morally, Morey won't be around uh, Houston 2024, 2026, or 2025. So it's it's a, to me it's one of those shot in the dark. Shot in the dark trades. Um, everybody, you know, listen. Everybody thinks it's gonna work. Everybody thinks it's gonna work. People who, are, who I've heard say it's gonna work. They've said the reason why it's going to work is because Westbrook and James Harden are friends. They get along. They've known each other since high school. Of course, played uh, played three years together in Oklahoma City. I say that doesn't matter whatsoever. The fact that they like each other, but that, that, that has nothing to do to me with on court chemistry. With them being able to um, being able to uh, play with each other. Now remember this: Westbrook and Harden, you can split their minutes up. You can stagger their minutes. There'll be times with you know I don't you know maybe Westbrook is with the second unit. I don't know how they're gonna how D'Antoni is gonna do that, but they're not always gonna be on the floor at the same time. I understand that, but bottom line is they will both be on. They will both be a part of Houston's crunch time lineup. Last five minutes of game of the game, um, playoff minutes key. You know, part of their, their playoff in terms of playoff minutes, they're going to be on the floor at the same time. And to me, Chris Paul, by far and away, was a better was a much better fit from a basketball standpoint than Russell Westbrook was. Now, you want to say Russell Westbrook at this point in his career is a better player than Chris Paul? Sure, but better player doesn't equal doesn't equal to be, be to being better fit. It doesn't. So, again, I don't listen. They'll win. They'll win fifty games. They'll get to the playoffs. They'll be either first or second round. No, they will go no further further than the the second round in conference semifinals in the Western Conference. This is not a they are not a contender, a legit contender, a contender, a team that can get out the Western Conference. And I think this will be a one-year experiment. I, don't, I do not see Westbrook being on this, being on the team more than one year. To be honest with you. 
again, you can have two guys on the team that like each other, get along. Um, that does not matter when it comes to chem, uh, chemistry on the court. It doesn't. You know, Chris Paul and James Harden, they, you know, when, when Chris Paul got to Houston, they got along and they liked each other. And to me, I look at the James Harden, Chris Paul situation. You know, I think Chris Paul is right from a standpoint, from a basketball standpoint. I, I think Chris Paul recognized, but you know, you can say what you want about Chris Paul. You can you can make fun about the fact that by himself or with, not by himself, but you know, prior to he prior to the time that he came to Houston, that he got hadn't gotten past the second round. You can make a case that he's over Pantheon of point guards. I. I I'm one who, who thinks that he's been overrated from the majority of his career. People call him call him the point guard and the best point guard of this generation and things of that nature. He's a Hall of Fame player without question, and he, he's a guy who understands who has a high basketball IQ. Under Chris Paul knows how to play basketball, and Chris Paul recognized that they were not going to win championships or a or even one championship playing the style, playing that style of play. Having one guy dribble the ball uh, 10 billion times and while, you know, while, you know, while the rest of the team just watches. Or having a guy, or having a guy that when he doesn't have the ball, basically, you know, might as well just be reading a uh, magazine. Because he's not, he's not moving. Because in terms of James Harden, Harden, when Harden doesn't have the ball, Harden was not, was not cutting to the basket, not moving, wasn't basically. You might as well have been not even been on the court. So you're telling me that he's not, he's going to all of a sudden be, because he likes Russell Westbrook, that he's going to cut, that he's going to be, he's going to move without the basketball. That's what you're, that's what you're telling me now, because he likes Russell, because they like each other. They're good friends. That he that's gonna he's gonna change or alter his style in terms of playing off the ball. That's the question, and that's the question from a basketball chemistry part standpoint. Who who's going to play off the ball um, from a stand? Who's going to play off the ball and be who's going to be effective off the ball? Which one of them is going to decide? Which one of them when they don't have the ball is going to decide? You know what? I might maybe I should set a screen. Or maybe I should cut to the basket and get a layup. Because neither one of them does anything off the ball. Neither one of them does anything off the ball. Now, Westbrook might post up some at times. That's what Westbrook does off the ball. He post, he'll, he'll post up. But again, he's looking for the ball once when he's posting up. Like Westbrook, I like it. The, the first screen Westbrook I see, well, the first screen that Westbrook sets, or the next screen that I see Westbrook set off the ball will be the first. And the same thing with James Hart. So that doesn't have anything to do with, I don't think James Harden was playing, didn't have an interest in playing off the ball or um, not doing anything when, when he didn't have the ball in his hands because he didn't like Chris Paul. I just think that's just his game. That's just that's just what he that's what he does. I, I don't think that was anti Chris Paul and Chris Paul event and, and Chris Paul rightfully showed rightfully so was annoyed by that and he should have been annoyed by that. So when I had the ball, you just gonna just you know be like this, waiting for the ball. 
waiting for me to pass it, waiting for you, to, waiting for me uh, to pass you the ball back, so you can dribble thirty thousand times. So, again, it'll be it'll be entertaining to watch. They'll put up a lot of numbers. They'll put up a lot of stats. Um, I, I, you know, they they both are gonna put up numbers like this. I mean, this if this were a, like fancy basketball, you know, th I mean, these will be the guys. These guys are the ultimate fancy basketball players. But that does not that's not gonna equate to winning basketball. It's not equate to playoff basketball. It's not gonna equate to a championship. And to me, if you're Houston, if you're not competing for a championship, then what are you? What are you doing? What, what are you doing? Like you don't think Russell Westbrook can get you to the level? You, I mean, again, this is a this to me was a shot in the dark. This was a shot in the dark trade. This was a this was the definition of just desperation. You can't tell me that you believe that Russell Westbrook is going to carry you, not carry you. It's going to, it's, he's the difference. He's the missing piece to you going from second round or to you coming out of the Western Conference and winning a championship. So it'll be entertaining. It'll be intriguing to watch, but from a basketball standpoint, it will not convey. It doesn't make Houston. Houston is, to me, Houston's worse off than what they were um, a couple of days ago. Because for whatever, for whatever, what was going on in Houston with Chris Paul and James Harden, whether they didn't like each other or whether, whatever was going on. And again, it's, it sounds like they both, it sounds like they just got to a point to where they were basically tired of playing with each other and more so than Harden and Paul. Because Paul really, Paul received, Paul realized, and I don't think, I, when, they, when, you, when they came out with reports, they came out with reports saying that Paul never requested to be traded and Paul didn't want it out of Houston. I completely believe that because Chris Paul knows how close they were to possibly winning a championship or getting to the finals in the last two years. Chris Paul is not a dummy. He knows his chances. He knows if he was, if he were traded, that the chances, chances are that he wouldn't end up on a, uh, more than likely possibly wouldn't end up on a contending team. So I, again, this to me, this was like, all James Harden. This was all James Harden. And again, I I completely understand what Oklahoma City is doing. Oklahoma City is in complete rebuilding mode. If you're gonna move Paul George, then there's no reason why Russell Westbrook should be on the team at that point. Because moving Paul George was 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 absolutely waving a white flag. Now. It's one thing to have a million draft picks. You got to do something with them. You got to do something with those picks. So they've, you know, the first, they've gotten rid of, they're, they're, they're going to more than likely get under the luxury tax. They've accomplished that. They've gotten under, they've gotten, you know, now all they have to do is get rid of Chris Paul, is, is move Chris Paul's contract, which I don't, which I think they will. They'll be able to move Chris Paul. I think Chris Paul still has some, I, listen, I don't think Chris Paul could be the primary on a championship team, but I, I don't think Chris Paul is completely done. I think Chris Paul could help up. You know, there are a couple of teams out there that Chris Paul could help uh, if, they're, if they're able to move his contract. Again, he can't, he, he cannot be a guy, he can't be a guy that you, that you depend on to carry you 
over the course of a playoff series. You have to, you're going to have to do, you know, load management with him. You're going to, have to watch his minutes. You're going to have to, you know, basically almost physically nurse him to the finish line because physically he's got that, you know, he has a lot, he has a lot of mileage on on his career, on those legs, and he's only, you know, what six foot. <laughs> so again, I would, if I'm Houston, I would have kept, uh, I would have kept Paul. I would not. I would not have gotten gotten to bed with with, Rush, with with Westbrook in that contract. I just. I'm sorry. I've seen enough of Westbrook over the past two or three years uh, to know what that what that movie is going to look like. Again, the mat. The, you know, playing with Paul George. That to me, that was a perfect fit playing with Paul George. Paul George was a guy that did not need the ball. That could play off the ball. That would move without the ball. It was a guy that defended. So he could take the pressure off Russell Westbrook from a defensive standpoint in terms of defending the other team's, you know, wing players or point guards or the other team's top scorers. Um, you know, yeah, now what PJ, yeah, PJ Tucker, yeah, who else in terms of defensively? That's one thing. And Chris Paul, you know, and Chris Paul, even at this stage of his career, is still a superior defensive player than to West, to uh, Russell Westbrook. It's not even close. Even at this late, even at the, even the fact that he's four years older than, than Westbrook, he's still a superior defensive player, defensive player to uh, in comparison to to uh, Russell Westbrook. So this seems like this seems like things will get a little bit quiet in the NBA now. Um, yeah, Ben Simmons signed uh, his, uh, his extension. Five years, one seventy. He'll be, you know, free agent up until two thousand and twenty-five. Um, again, it's a move that you, Philadelphia, you know, it's a move that you have to do if you're Philadelphia. I don't have any, I don't have any problem with it. I mean, it could have waited a year, but Philly, you know, wants to get ahead. If you wait a year, he and, and he's all star again, then that number, that number probably would, you know, that number probably would go up. So Philly, you know, getting them on a somewhat—I don't want to say—I'm not gonna say team-friendly contract, but you're getting them. He's 22 years old, so five years, 170 million dollars is the market value. He's—he's—he's he's, he's an all-star. He's a guy. He has the potential to be a superstar if he comes back with a better offensive game, and he—he he is a tradable asset. You can move his contract with his his skill set and with how young he is, how in terms of how young he is. So that you know. Don't have any problem with that with that move. Philly is in win now mode. Is now or never for Philadelphia as far as some of the contracts they have uh, on their docket with uh, with Harris and also Embiid. And now you have Simmons, so they are you know, they are in absolute win now mode as far as uh, as far as that franchise goes. But again, that that contract can be moved if. Some for for whatever reason they decide next year. If Simmons doesn't come back with an offensive game next year, they go out early in the first round. There'll be a number of teams that would even despite that contract that could that would take Ben Simmons on their uh, on their respective uh, on their respective teams. So don't have don't have any problem with Philly um, signing him to that deal again. Five years, one seventy is absolute market value for a guy of his skill set and a guy who. Um, Again, still, I still has a chance to be has an opportunity to be a superstar. I mean, Ben Simmons, he he can do everything but shoot. <laughs> I mean, the guy can rebound the ball. He's an above average passer. 
He has a chance to be an elite defensive player. Uh, he could be an all-league defender. If he really focus, locks in on defense, he could be that type of uh, defensive player. He, you know, we know what he can do in terms of, uh, we know, you know, 6'10", 230. We know he's a freakish athlete. So all the talent, he's, you know, he has all the potential in the world. Uh, just has to, he just has to come back with a a somewhat refined offensive game, and he has to be willing to take jump shots. I'm not even saying he has to come back with a great jump shot. Just be willing to take jump shots and improve his foul shooting. He's got, he, has, he has to become at least 75. You're a point guard on a team. You have to be at least 75%, 75 to 80% from, on, 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 from the line. Again, it'll be, it'll be interesting watching Philadelphia with their crush time lineup. And who is that? Will, will Ben Simmons' offensive game develop to a point to where they want the ball in his hands in key moments in a playoff, in playoff, in a playoff series? Because last year it was Jimmy Butler. It was a close one. Ben Simmons, you go down to what they call a dunker spot, get some offensive rebounds, um, some putbacks, things of that nature. We're giving Jimmy – we're going to run basically a two-man game with Jimmy Butler and Joel Embiid. That was the Philly offense uh, in the playoffs. That will not work out. Um, they don't have that guy this year. If Ben Simmons does not come back with a refined offensive game, who's that guy this year? It's definitely not Josh Richardson. Okay, so um, Simmons is going to have to come back with a, you know, with a uh, with an offensive game that 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 can uh, that you can trust down, you know, three minutes, last five minutes a game, last three minutes a game in a playoff spot in a playoff game. I don't care about what he does in a regular season from a standpoint of you know he'll get his numbers, he'll put up eighteen. You know, he'll put up 18, anywhere from 16 to 18 points. He'll get his 8 to 10 assists. He'll get his 7 to 8 rebounds. And we know he's going to – and he'll shoot a high percentage from a standpoint of the fact that he's not going to take three-point shots. But numbers that you're going to want to watch out for with Simmons, his free throws and his attempts in terms of jump shot attempts. I don't even care if he doesn't take three-point shots. That, that He doesn't need to take three-point shots to be effective. He just needs to take – to add, to take 15 to 20 foot jump shots and improve his foul shooting. Uh, yesterday, you got a match in at Wimbledon that reminded you, if you forgot, on why tennis can be one of the most captivating sports out there. And it's been it's been a while since we had a match like this. Um, probably last year with the Federer. Um, Nadal matchup, Federer, Nadal, maybe two years, I would even say two years ago, with Federer, Nadal in the Australian Open, Australian Open Final 2017. It's been a while since we got that kind of, you know, just you had to uh, uh, kind of match where you had to stay glued to the television and, you know, for four and a half to five hours. And, you know, that was, you know, that was a classic match. Was it as good as Nadal Federer 2008? No, not quite on that level, but it was close. In terms of importance, you can make a case that if Djokovic overtakes Federer for the all-time uh, all leader in Grand Slam wins, that that, that that was the match that turned that, turned that, um, that, you know, that was the match that made the difference. And that was the match that was the turning point in terms of, Djokovic being um, the one who, the player who, had, who finishes with the most majors. That has to be the most 
devastating loss for Roger Federer in his career. Federer has had some, you know, Federer has had some tough losses in his career. I mean, you think of some, you think about some, especially in Grand Slams. I mean, if you think about what happened in NATO with NATO in 2008, uh, 9-7 in the 5th at Wimbledon. You think about the, the think about the 2009 uh, U.S. Open where he was up, I believe, up two sets to one. Might have been up, maybe even up two sets to nothing, but definitely up two sets to one and lost to uh, Juan, Del, uh, Juan uh, Del Potro, who at the point, who at the time, no one knew, like, Del Potro was not a big name at that point. You know, he kind of came out of nowhere and beat Federer um, and broke Federer's, you know, stranglehold on the U.S. Open. Federer had won five straight U.S. Opens up to that point. I just thought that it was no way Federer. And that's, that was prime Federer. This is this 10 years ago. The Federer was still in his prime at that point. That was a devastating loss. But this one, this one was one of those losses that Federer will take to his grave. You're up eight, seven. You have you have the you have the championship on your racket, double match point, and you and you know give Djokovic all the credit in the world. Djokovic at this point in his career is probably the most mentally tough player on in the sport right now, and that's saying a lot considering Federer and 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 Nadal are still playing at a high level. But uh, that that's one that Federer will just you know, will, that will stew for a long time for Roger Federer. Even Federer, I will say this, even if Federer goes on years from now, let's say 10 to 15 years from now, he goes and he, you know, Djokovic, all, all of them are retired, and Federer finishes with the most grand slams, that still will bother Federer. That type of, that's how bad of a, of a loss it was. Hmm. You know, as Roger Federer doesn't lose matches like that, championship matches on his racket now, he lost to Federer. He lost to Djokovic twice in back-to-back U.S. Opens with um, with uh, having two match points uh, saved, where he where the two match points were saved. But that was neither. I don't believe either one of those were on his racket, and those were semifinals matchups in the U.S. Open. Those were not finals. This was the Wimbledon final. This was 37-year-old Roger Federer uh, in the twilight twilight of his career. With his, you know, one of his nemesis on, you know, the guy that he hadn't beaten in a Grand Slam, hasn't beaten in a Grand Slam since 2012. Okay, he hasn't beaten Djokovic in seven years in a Grand Slam. And he, this was, you know, Djokovic over the last few, three, last few Grand Slams that they've, that they've met has clearly had, has basically had his way with Federer for the most part. He's had his way. I mean, the matchups, some of the matchups, you know, 2014 Wimbledon was five sets, but 2015 Wimbledon and 2015 U.S. Open Finals were basically one-sided. Four-set match, they went four sets, but you but you never got the sense that Djokovic, that Djokovic was not going to win either one of those matchups. He controlled the controlled both of those uh, both of those matches in 2015. This this was this this match. I thought Federer was the was the better player. I mean, I thought you look at every stat, you look at you know, Federer, Djokovic won all three sets that he had to win in, you know, in tiebreakers. Federer even, you know, Federer had break points in those tiebreakers. Federer had, uh, you know, the two match points. And I, I thought Federer, I thought Federer outplayed Djokovic, to be honest with you. He had, you know, finished with more winners, more uh, aces. He finished with, uh, you know, more service breaks. He won more points, won more games. 
Every, I mean, every statistic, every statistical metric told you that Roger Federer won that match. But you know, in tennis, is who you know it can come down to a, a point here, a point there. Who is who plays the big points? You know, who plays the big point? Who who is better at playing the big points? And when it came to down to the tiebreakers, it was Djokovic who. Um, you know, it was Djokovic who, uh, for the most part, controlled the tiebreakers. Um, so that is, again, that is a brutal loss for Federer. Uh, now, I'm not one who is automatically going to give Djokovic the the moniker of greatest of all time and say that he's going to break this record. Let's, let's slow down on that. He's still four majors away from tying the record five from breaking it. In tennis, that is a lot of majors in tennis. And we should not assume that Djokovic is going to continue to play at this level. Uh, he'll be 33. He'll be 33, I believe, after the U.S. Open. Um, remember, Djokovic and, and they all play a style of play that that does not, that normally does not age well. Now, they both of them have won majors after the age of 30. They've taken advantage of the fact that no young player, no young players have stepped up at all to challenge these guys. That's why Federer and Nadal and Djokovic are just continue to continue to dominate tennis because there's no 25 year old. Unlike you know the women's, you have a bunch of young guns that basically push Serena out of the top spot and basically push Serena Williams aside. Okay, there's no that there's no there are no players and there are no men's tennis players doing that to Federer, Djokovic, or Nadal. And I, what I did see from yet, what I did see yesterday is, and what yesterday also told me was, Federer has some majors left in him. He has some gas left in the tank. He really does. If you told me Federer wins the U.S. Open this year, I would not be surprised if he if he won the U.S. Open. Because again, his style of play, his you know just. You know, Federer is kind of like, you know, he's kind of like Tom Brady. I mean, whatever training methods he's using, how he manages his body, how he manages his schedule, whatever it is he's doing is working because he's like, there's nothing at the, even at the age of 37, soon to be 38, there's nothing that he cannot do even at this advanced age. And again, he played, he played a great match for the most part last, yesterday, played a great match. And he showed me that he still is capable of winning majors. Now, in past losses to Djokovic, I didn't believe that Federer was. You know, when Federer lost to Djokovic and, and those, he had three losses, three finals losses to Djokovic between 2014 and 2015, two Wimbledon's and one U.S. Open final. And I didn't think that he, even in those matches, even with the U.S. Open final or the, the Wimbledon final in 2014, where he came close. Lost in the fifth set. I didn't think he had had any majors left in him. Then he comes. Then he, you know, between seventeen to eighteen, he wins three majors with the two Australian Opens and the one Wimbledon um, in two thousand two. You know, the one Wimbledon back in two thousand seventeen. He Federer can win a major or two. I think he has a. He, I think he has one. He has one or two majors left in him. To be honest with you. So it's going to be an interesting race to see who finishes, you know, number one all time in terms of uh, total in terms of total Grand Slams. I think it's between Federer, 
and Djokovic, I do not think Nate because the problem with Nate all is Nate all does not win on Nate all only wins French French Opens. As soon as Nate all is you know, as soon as somebody takes out Nate all in the French, he won't win any other Grand Slams. That's the problem with Nate. That, that is the problem with Nate all, and that's why you know when this thing is said and done, that more than likely, um, I you know it's going to be a toss up between Federer and Djokovic in terms of who is the greatest of all time. Remember, Federer has won five or more majors at three different uh, at three different uh, events. He's got, you know, eight Wimbledons, six, five U.S. Opens, and um, eight Wimbledons, five U.S. Opens, and five uh, Australian Opens. Or, excuse me, or six, six Australian Opens. If I, if I did my math right, eight, six... 5, 19, 1, okay, 20. Nadal, you know, 12 of his 18 majors have came at have come at one event. Now, you know, look at Djokovic. Djokovic now has five Wimbledons. I mean, that's a big deal. Five Wimbledons, um, seven Australian Opens, and uh, yeah, I think he has three U.S. Opens and one French Open. So again, it's going to be a fascinating to watch over the next couple of years. Um, which which one falls off first? Falls off because again, is when it happens when they when when either one of those guys falls off, it's going to happen quickly. That's how it happens in especially in tennis. It happens fast. Guys, guys for the most part get old, and they get old, or or even or women women's tennis players. When it happens, when they go, they go quick. They go quick, but right now there are no signs that any one of those three are going anywhere anytime soon. As far as Serena goes, uh, I'm not surprised that Serena lost. Uh, she is now two and two and five in her last seven major finals. Um, Serena's old. I mean, we got we we have to listen. I'm surprised that she lost in straight sets, but I'm not surprised she lost. There are a number of young, talented. Uh, women's tennis players, Simone Halep, Simone Stevens, uh, Asaka, who's won a couple, um, who's won two or three majors. Those, listen, Serena's, you know, Serena just had a baby. Um, I thought she, I thought she was in the best shape since, since she, I thought that in terms of her conditioning, that it was where it was, you know, it was where, you know, it was where it needed to be. From you know, from the looks of it, but the bottom line is she's old, and she's she's face she's way past her prime. And you know, you hear comments from Billie Jean King, which made zero sense with all Billie Jean King, Chris Hyde, and Serena, basically saying that she's not committed to committed, um, fully committed to tennis right now. That she's too you know involved in you know fighting for equal rights or too involved in trying to be a celebrity. We'll let, let Billie Jean King on a little secret. Serena Williams has been a celebrity for 20 years. She's been a celebrity for 20 years, and Billie Jean King is a walking contradiction to criticize somebody fighting for gender equal rights amongst amongst women. I mean, battle of sexes, you know, Bobby Riggs. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, it's one thing that the knocker is saying she's trying to be a celebrity, but you can't criticize her for doing something that you were doing, you know, that you were doing a part of 40 or 50 years ago. About 40, about 40 years ago, I mean, please. Or that you've been fighting for your whole life. 
as far as gender rights and, you know, equal pay for women and things of that nature. I mean, yeah, I'll be kidding me. But again, Serena's losing because she's old. She's, I think, she's 37 years old. Women tennis players top out at 28, 29, 27 for the most part. Now you had a case, you had some of the, you know, some of the exceptions, Steffi Graf, I think won her last major, she was 29, 30. Martina Navratilova was over the age of 30 when she won her last major. Those are, ex I mean, I just gave you two of the probably top five players in the history of the sport. I mean, the, probably the three greatest players in the history of the sport probably are Serena Williams, Steffi Graf, and Martina Navratilova. You, know, you can sprinkle in Mar a Margaret Court or a Chris Everett. That's probably your top five right there. But you know, it, the fact that she's getting to finals is a major is a, is a big deal at this at this stage in her, in her life. And you know, she's at she's at a she's you know she's a mother. She's at a different point in her life. Tennis is not the end all be all for her. It's not. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't think that's affected her play. I just think she's thirty seven years old, and I think that's certain as certain. At some point, she was gonna she was going to stop winning majors. At some point, like it, it was it was it was going to happen again. There are a, unlike the men, there are a number of young, talented women, uh, women tennis players who who are winning majors and who have no fear whatsoever of Serena Williams. None. The men the men are scared to death of Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. Scared to death. Okay. That's not the case in women's tennis. So, I don't know. Does, I don't know if Serena does. Serena have one left in her. I don't know. So I, I think I think Federer does have one or two, one or two left in him. I don't. I'm not sure about Serena because I just think she's at a different place in her life right now. It's not a knock on her. It's just reality. That's going to wrap it up for this latest edition of the Real Deal Podcast. Tell me like it is with no apologies. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Over the thanks for your, for your support. And again, check out my website. Check out my uh, YouTube channel, Real Deal Podcast. I'm out.